Amen. You may be seated. Dear brothers, dear sisters, I pray that you grew in personal holiness this week. I pray that whether you count this week as a good one or a bad one according to human scales, that you've entrusted whatever happened this week to the God who is good. Because you've got an enemy that wants to take any little pain point, any little friction, any little piece of sand in your boot, and he wants you to turn that in on yourself. And it's just selfishness, selfish thoughts, self, selfish obsessions. And we've got a God that will take whatever this week looked like, the good, the bad, the ugly, the indifferent, that he will take all that and he has promised that he will use it to mold you into the image of his precious son. So I pray that you allowed him to do that. I pray that you chased out the thoughts of the enemy, which called you to look at yourself, to only worry about yourself. I pray that you grew in trust and in faith this week. I pray that you saw the schemes of the enemy. Satan doesn't like it when we talk about him. At least not when we talk rightly about him from God's word. So I pray that you saw the schemes of the enemy. We did talk last week about demons. Those once holy angels, they're around the throne in heaven, worshiping night and day. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. But then came a coup, an attempt, a rebellion. These once holy angels, they clamored for worship for themselves. They desperately desired to be seen themselves as God, to place their throne on high above God. And their leader, Lucifer, the king of the demons, he along with the rest of those that would follow him, they were cast down to earth. And that once here, they would set about with one singular focus, whether they're lying, whether they're killing, whether they're stealing, whether they're destroying. The singular focus is this, to hamper the work of God, to destroy the work of God, to do everything that is within them to ensure that the gospel message of Jesus Christ does not reach the ends of the earth. Because they know, dear friends, they know that once that moment comes, once the gospel of Jesus Christ has been proclaimed and every ear has heard, every tribe, every tongue, every nation, not every individual ear, but every tribe, every tongue, every nation, once this gospel reaches the ends of the earth, that then Jesus will return. And what awaits them is nothing short of torment. Don't let Bugs Bunny cartoons fool you, friends. Hell is not Satan's playground. He and his followers are not skipping with glee down below tormenting just the lost souls of this generation hell's a place designed specifically for the torment of satan and his followers the gnashing of teeth the fire which is never quenched night and day day and night to where that we can get to the point at the end of ten thousand years they're no closer to the end of this torment than when they'd first begun they know that this is what awaits them and so they will do everything within their power to hamper the work of the gospel because they know that there's power in the word. Not power in my words, power in the word. And if they can keep the word out of the ears of those equipped with the Holy Spirit, they know that they can delay. They know that they can pause. They know that they can keep souls from being snatched from their deadly father's hand. And that's what they want more desperately than anything else. And so we talked last week about this fact. Because they knew that with the incarnation of Jesus Christ, that the end had begun. That the last days had begun. With the Son of God being born of a virgin and becoming man, they knew that the clock was ticking. And they had to resist this, they had to resist this gospel at all, at all cost. And so it should be no surprise to us then that as we saw Jesus there in a synagogue preaching the gospel, reading from the Isaiah scroll and declaring that what they have just read has been done right before their very eyes, in their hearing, it should be no surprise then that there would be a man possessed by a demon there that would cry out, that would lash out. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? We know who you are, the Holy Son of God. Desperately wanting to shut him down in that moment. And yet, all he had to do was utter the word. You keep my name out of your filthy mouth and you come from that man now. That's Josh's paraphrase. And the demon flees. He has no choice. He flees from this man. And so we continue as we read through the life of our precious Lord and Savior. 
because there's still some questions yet to be answered. You see, if Jesus is really going to destroy the works of the devil, if he is really going to free captives from his hand, if he's really going to win citizens for the kingdom, he's got to have power over all heaven, all earth, not just the spirits, but the physical as well. He's shown last week in chasing the demon from the man that he has power over all the spiritual world, over all the things that are in heaven and that are down below. So stand to your feet as we continue reading and see what's next. We return to Mark's gospel, first chapter, verse 29. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. All God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Father God, would you make this book live to me? In it, would you show me yourself? Would you show me myself? Would you show me my Savior? Would you make this book live to me? Your son's precious name we pray. Amen. So as we found last week, Jesus was there, as was his custom. He was there preaching on the synagogue on the Sabbath. And as I told you last week, I can't help but think that perhaps God set up the entire synagogue system in such a way that any rabbi that was coming through the town, respected rabbi, would be welcomed into that synagogue and been given an audience, given an opportunity to preach. I can't help but think that God set that whole thing up so that his son could come to moments just like this, where he would be welcomed in amongst the brothers there and he could preach the gospel. And so he's there and he's confronted by this demon and then he, he, he chases this demon from this man. And you have to wonder, surely that shut down the rest of the service, right? Like how does some other rabbi go, yeah, I got something cool to tell you too. After you watch the Son of God chase a demon from a possessed man. How do you respond to that with anything other than just falling down on your face in worship? I, I can't imagine. What trumps that? Surely they broke into just, just a, a chorus of just, just singing or worship or spontaneous praise or something. Knowing that truly something miraculous has come. And I can imagine as they just sit around. It says Jesus and, and, and Andrew and, and Peter and James and John. They left and went to the house. Don't you imagine they just sat there and just kind of stared at each other and went, what? Is this really the Christ? Surely this is something more. We've not seen these things before. And so historians tell us that um, typically on, on, a, on a Saturday, on, on a Sabbath, that synagogue would end about noon, much like the, the pattern that we have today, and that that would be a day of, of a big dinner. A big, you know, there would be a big afternoon meal then waiting for them, not completely unlike what we do in our culture. And so James and, and, and John follow Simon and Andrew and Jesus, and they, they leave this place, and they, they head home to eat, and they enter the house of, of, of Peter and Andrew, and, and they, it's about a 75-meter walk, maybe, something like that. It's not a, not a terribly long, long distance, but you, you can see them just as they, as they leave church, and they're just kind of just walking, the, walking down the hill towards Peter's house, and then, and then they get there, and now Simon Peter's mother-in-law, she was ill with a fever. Simon and Peter, Simon Peter, who the apostle Peter, he, um, he had a mother-in-law. We, we know that he was married. You don't get a mother-in-law without being married, but we read about his wife in 1 Corinthians 9, 5. Paul is talking about him. He says, do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? That's Peter. So apparently Peter had a wife, and apparently his wife was a believing woman, and apparently this believing woman went with him on missionary journeys. And as was not completely... Un, uh, uncommon in that day peter's mother-in-law lived with him that's not that's a common thing all throughout the world today that that you would welcome in your elderly parents and they could live with you there and so she's there and it tells us that she was sick she had a fever now luke is a medical doctor as well as a, a writer of one of our gospels and luke says that she had a high fever so apparently she had some kind of infection going on this wasn't just a mild cold or allergies or something like that she had a real fever a high fever she had something that was attacking her body. Perhaps it was an infection of some kind, and her body was rebelling against that. It was fighting against that. But you've got to remember that at this time, there weren't really cures for anything, right? There weren't antibiotics that she was going to be able to take. There wasn't even Tylenol or something like that to bring the fever down. What, what you would treat people with was, would be like herbs and minerals and, and just, just no real cure. And I understand that you homeopathic people hate my guts now. I get it. Those things are 
they're good too. But basically, people at that point, you would do what you could to manage this thing, and then you would just kind of suffer through it. You would wait it out and find out if you're going to come out the backside okay. And it's so foreign to us today. Because today, you, your kid wakes up, they tell you to have a scratchy throat, and you just figure out which of the six urgent care clinics you're going to go to. Or maybe you don't even do that. You just call your teledoc, and they, they call in an antibiotic for you of some sort. And we're just so very spoiled. I'm not saying that this is a bad thing, but this is so foreign to us, the idea that somebody would just lay there with a fever, and that there wasn't medicine that she could take, that there wasn't, there wasn't much she could do but sit here and suffer through this. And so this lady was sick, and then immediately... They told him about her. So Jesus walks in the house. They've just seen what has happened, and immediately they tell him, my mother is sick. Would you do something for her? My mother-in-law is sick. Would you care for her in her fever? This is intercession. Have you heard that word before? Intercession? Intercessory prayer? Intercession is just going and intervening on someone else's behalf. It's going to someone that can do something about a problem and asking on behalf of another. It's not unlike an older sibling going to mom and dad and asking on behalf of the younger sibling. Perhaps they don't know how to formulate the question. Perhaps they don't know what to ask. Perhaps they don't know what resources the parents have. This is, this is, a, this is not to be confused or not to be blended with. There's, there's another fancy churchy word called supplication. You heard that one? Supplication. It's got the key word in there, the, or the root word in there, supply. It's, it's going to the one with the supply and asking. The difference between intercession and supplication is that intercession, you're going on somebody else's behalf. And there's something so precious about that. There's something so beautiful about going to the Lord on somebody else's behalf. We read about both of those in Paul's letter to Timothy, 1 Timothy 2.1. First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayer, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. And it is. That's part of what we do here on Sunday nights. We come together on Sunday nights and we pray. We just read through name after name after name. Most of those people aren't here. Many of those people don't even know that they're being prayed for. But we're coming into this place and we're lifting their name up to the God on high. The one that can actually meet their needs. The one that knows their needs before we even lift them up. And yet he desires this. He calls us to do this. And it's such a precious thing to cry out to the God above, God above and say, Dear God, would you help them? You love them more than we do. You know them better than we do. You know their needs better than they know themselves. So from your endless supply, Holy Father, would you please meet them? Would you please meet them right where they are? Would you care for them right where they are? Would you meet their every need? Because we know that there is no end for, to your supply. And that's, that's intercession. So that's what we see these guys doing. Now, we don't know how much of Jesus they understand at this point. We know that even after the resurrection, they still had pretty good, pretty good confusion. They're still talking about the kingdom of Israel. They still didn't fully in their minds, even after the resurrection, understand exactly who Jesus was and, 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 and fully comprehend all that he had come to do. And so certainly this early in the game, they didn't have it all figured out, but they knew enough. They knew that he was a shepherd worth following. They heard his voice and they knew his voice. They knew that he was one to be trusted. They knew that they had seen what he had done for another. And so they knew that he was the guy to ask. If they were going to ask anybody, they knew that he was the guy to ask. And so this is right, and this is good. As they come to him and they ask, Jesus, would you heal her? We've seen you heal this other man of a demon. Would you heal her of this fever? But you see, this moment, it's about so much more than just a woman and her fever. It's about the Son of God proving that he is the Son of God. This is about the Son of God validating the message that he's been preaching. It's about him proving that he really is the Messiah. He really is the one that can free all captives. That can do everything that needs to be done to win citizens for heaven and overcome the evil one. Yes, he cared for this woman. Yes, he had sympathy for the fact that she was laying there and that she was suffering. But this was about so much more than just this one lady. He had clearly shown that he had power over the spiritual. He had shown it there in the synagogue. But now what about the physical? Could he overcome the physical? That's what he's showing here because man is more than just spirit. He's body too. Man isn't just a spiritual, spiritual being. That in our, in our very creation, that man was made out of dust. We talked about this. You with me today, Clay? That he made this man out of the... I'm sorry. Look at him. He throws his head back. Never again. I won't ever mention your name again. Let me find another kid to pick on. So that he makes... Man, I've never seen a reaction that good. He threw his head back like, will this guy get off my case? Um, all right. So... You remember it though, right? He makes the man out of dust. He leans down, he breathes into him, spirit, life, into this man, so that man made in the image of God is spirit. He is a spiritual being with a physical body, and that God cares for us, not just spiritually, but physically as well. 
but he had made a warning. He had made a warning there to the man in the garden. He said to him in Genesis 2, 16 through 17, the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall, you shall surely die. Both spiritual and physical death would result because of this fall. That in our sin, we would immediately be separated from God. Immediately. And we, that's played out in the life of Adam and Eve as they're cast from the garden. If they're, as they're removed from the garden and there's angels that are left there with flaming swords to so make certain that they don't come and lean out, reach out their hand and take from the tree of life. That they will no longer live, but they're also spiritually dead. That they're spiritually separated. God's making clear that man created in his image simply cannot spit in his face and continue to live in his presence. And make no, make no mistake, dear friends, sin is more than just breaking some rules. These aren't just cosmic rules. These aren't just some laws of nature. This is the God of heaven revealing himself so that every time we sin, every time we turn our back on his law, every time we rebel against him, we are looking at the God who created us. The God who supplies our every need. The God whose holiness knows no end. And we're saying, we know better than you. We love our ways and we despise your ways. We fear the world more than we fear you. We're spitting in his face. And because of that, we cannot come into his presence. We cannot know him. We cannot please him. Spiritually, the way that we commune with God, we are dead. Read the words of Ephesians 2.1. You were dead in your sins and trespasses. That's not the picture the world has of themselves. They don't see themselves as spiritually dead. They see themselves as spiritually pretty good or perhaps spiritually neutral. Very few people will you find walking among the street and saying, I am totally depraved. In my innermost being, I am sinful, I am depraved, I've rebelled against the king on high, and I am spiritually dead. You will not find a one that will declare that. And yet, the man sinned. He did reach out his hand. He did, dis he did disobey God. He did rebel against the one that had made him. He sinned. So as a result of that, immediate separation from God. But in addition to that, he would then physically die. Not immediately in that moment, but physical decay. Slowly, over time, the march towards death would come. Just as God had said. Listen in Genesis 3, 19. This is the promise of God. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken. You are dust, and to dust you shall return. Life will be hard, and then you'll die. Sounds about right, doesn't it? That was the promise of God that you'll return to the, de to, to the dust. De death is a curse. Death is a curse. God had told them, you'll be under this curse if you rebel against me because Adam was more than just dust. And yet in his sin and in his rebellion, his body would return to dust. He was meant to be higher than the animals, higher than the angels. He was the one made in the image of God. And yet because he rebelled against that God and spit in his face, his body would go back to the dust. That wasn't God's original plan. This was a result of the curse. This was a result of the fall. And because we are all like our father Adam, we all found ourselves under that very same curse. Romans 5, 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all have sinned. That we are all undergoing the curse of death. And I need you to see in death this undoing of God's precious gift. When God gives man this incredible gift of being made in his image, of knowing him, the ability to be spiritually alive and commune with God, to please him, to obey him, to walk with him, to hear his word and to understand his word, what death does is it strip, just strips that. It rips it apart. It's taking that which God has put together and it's ripping it apart. It's a violent thing. It's an ugly thing. It's not the way that God had created this thing to be. But we can't lose sight of this, guys. Death is not your friend. We become so sterilized to death. I talked about this on Wednesday night. Because apart from hunting, so few of us even kill our own animals. Even when our animals need to be put down, we take them to a veterinarian. Most of our loved ones, they die in hospitals somewhere with a little bit of separation there. That More often than not, people aren't dying in our own homes. And so because of this, we become so disconnected from death that we forget what it really is. And I'm not telling you this is a bad thing, that we've been able to allow people to die in comfort if that's where they want to be, in the hospital bed or wherever it is. What I'm telling you, though, is that we've gotten to the point where I think we forget that death is an enemy. We forget that death is not a friend of ours. We forget that death is a result of the curse and that every single man is marching straight towards it. How's this for an uplifting sermon? It's the truth. It's the reality that we're all marching towards this curse because we were under the curse. 
So if Jesus was truly the Messiah, if he was truly going to destroy the works of Satan, if he was truly going to restore mankind, he must be able to conquer death and decay, this part of the curse, in addition to the spiritual fall. He must be able to cure the physical curse. So verse 31 says, And he came, and he took her by the hand, and he lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve him. Luke says it like this, that Jesus rebuked the fever, and it left her immediately. You notice it's immediately. There wasn't a delay. That immediately Jesus speaks. He takes her by the hand. He lifts her up. And immediately the fever leaves her. That's the thing about Jesus. It doesn't take time. There's not some delay. He didn't have to say some special chant. He didn't have to sprinkle anything on her. He takes her by the hand. She stands up and she's better. It says that she immediately began to serve them. You know how you feel when you come out of a fever? When you've been laying in a bed with fever for days on end, you don't feel like jumping up and serving people. You're wrecked. You're tired. Maybe a bowl of soup to start, something like that. And yet she goes to immediately serving him. This is a miracle. This is a miraculous healing. This was not normal means. Jesus is showing that he has authority over body and spirit. Verse 32, that evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. At sundown, the people all come to him. Why did they wait till sundown? Was it because of the heat? I don't think so. you got to remember, when was Jesus in the synagogue? It was the Sabbath. Scripture says that immediately he walked that 75, 50, 100 yards to Simon Peter's house, and he finds her like this, and he healed her. And so because of the Sabbath laws, because of the Sabbath rules, there would have been many people that couldn't travel far enough to get to Jesus. There were requirements. There were laws that had been put upon him, many of these man-made laws uh, as a result of the Sabbath that prevented people from walking far enough to get to Jesus. Can you imagine living in that world? They couldn't walk far enough to get to Jesus. But secondly, and perhaps I think more likely for many of these people, there was additional oral tradition and, and, and man-made laws that restricted, apparently restricted the healing of men on the Sabbath. This was not God's original design. We're going to talk about this whenever we get to some future healings. But Matthew 12 talks about this. When Jesus heals a man with a withered hand there on the Sabbath, and those that wish to entrap him come to him and ask him, is it right? Is it legal? Is it allowed for you to heal on the Sabbath? Well, yes. Yes, it is. But these people had been so oppressed by those that wrote the laws. These people had been so oppressed by those that made the rules that I'm sure they in themselves thought, you know what? This man can't heal me. It's not right for this man to heal me. And so they wait till sundown. Because remember, the Jewish day begins at sundown. So as soon as sundown comes, it's no longer the Sabbath. It's now Sunday. Now I can go and I can see Jesus. And it says here that they came. The whole city, verse 33, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. Can you imagine this scene? As the whole city comes together, and they gather together at the door of this house. I told you, it's one of the bigger houses in that town, but it ain't big. And as the whole people, they gather together, they press together, they move in together to come see this Jesus. All the sick people together in one place. This is fresh on our mind, right? People are staying off cruise ships. They're canceling concerts. Because they're all afraid of the latest plague. And let me just remind you, friends, our Lord and Savior tells us that we're not to fear. Like, do not fear at all, much less move all the way on to panic. And from a, from a practical standpoint, Y2K didn't get us. Swine flu didn't get us. Mad cow disease didn't get us. Bird flu didn't get us. Those animals can't get us. Just chill out. <laughs> Chill out. Even if every one of us in this room catch the coronavirus and die, God is good. He has told us to go bravely. He's told us not to panic. So buy your Germax, drink your orange juice, don't lick your hand before you shake somebody else's. But just let's chill a little bit. But you can imagine the scene here as, as these people are just there and they're all pressing in around. And wouldn't you? Wouldn't you? If you had been sick, if you had a sick family member and you hear that there's Jesus here and there's healing in his, in his hand, there's healing in his word, they're all just pressing in around the house and they just desperately want to see him. They want to get a look at him. They want to get a word with him. They want to see, can you do the same thing for us that you've done for these other people? It's just a mob, a crazy scene of people. They're all pressing in. In verse 34, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Matthew says that he healed all who were sick. Luke says that he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them all every one of them didn't make them qualify didn't make them fill out a form didn't need their insurance card he healed them all this isn't always jesus pattern there are times when 
He was there at the pool of Bethesda, and he just healed the one man. There was other people that wanted to be healed on that day. They were all there because they wanted to get into the pool. They thought there was healing in the pool, and he just healed the one man. There are plenty of times when Jesus walks past others to seek out the one that he's going. But this wasn't one of those times that he healed them all. He eradicated illness in an entire town on one day in one moment. Can you imagine the power? Don't look past this. We read this as just one little line in Scripture. Nothing like this had ever been done. That he could just, with a word, with a touch, he could completely wipe out illness. All those that came to him were healed. All those that were tormented by a demon were healed. Everybody, in the power of his name, with the power of his word, with a touch of his hand, that they were all fixed. <laughs> Isn't it any wonder that his name began to spread, that his, his reputation began to spread that people wanted to see more and hear more about this Jesus so what do we do with this today what do we do with this today because there's a lot of there's a lot of preachers out there talking about healing there's a lot of preachers out there talking about healing and the God who heals a lot of preachers pointing to text exactly like this and they're asking the question can you be healed does Jesus still heal and I think we've got to first remember what it is that I just said a few minutes ago. We've got to start from a right understanding of what sickness is before we can talk about the way that Jesus is going to relate to it. And we've got to go back to what we said a little bit, a little bit ago, that death and decay are a result of the fall. It's a curse. It's a curse because of the fall of man. And we've got to remember that as children of the living God, as adopted brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ, we are no longer under that curse. That he has paid it all. The fullness of that curse rested upon him. He satisfied every bit of God's wrath, every bit of the punishment that came because of the fall of man. All of it was found in Jesus Christ. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus, that Jesus atoned for it all. That what we saw there on that cross was not just a physical death, that there was that separation as he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There was that spiritual separation. There was that pouring out of wrath and hatred upon sin and sinners resting upon him. And he died physically. And he died physically as he lost blood, as the air left his, as the air left his lungs. His brain activity stopped. He breathed his last and he died. So that the fullness of the curse that was upon man found itself on Jesus Christ. So that for the redeemed, for us, death, decay... The thing that waits us at the end of this life, it is not the curse. It is not punishment any longer. It is an enemy. It is still an enemy. Life is a precious gift from God. Death is still the enemy, but it is not the curse. It is not meant to destroy you. It is not meant to drive you away any longer. The God that is for us is fully for us. But the truth of the matter is we still live in a fallen world. We still live in a fallen world. And the part of this fallen world is the decay, even the decay of our bodies. And at the end of this thing, we will all die. Matthew 9, uh, excuse me, Hebrews 9.27 says this, It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. This is because of the fact that while Jesus Christ, our Savior, did in fact defeat the enemy of death, he has overcome Satan and death there on the cross, so that it is right for us to sing the words, Death, where is your sting? Or hell, where is your sting? Death, where is your victory? Where it is right to sing those words, it is right to stand on those words, that Jesus has not ultimately and finally destroyed death until he comes back. That he said here in 1 Corinthians 15, 24 through 26, then comes the end, this is Paul's words, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So that whatever healing we experience in this life is but a foretaste of what comes at the end. That while death continues to move around among us, while it has been defeated and is no longer a curse among us, we're no longer under the curse, we're no longer under the condemnation. It's no longer a thing meant to destroy us or to separate us or to drive us away. That it is still here and it is still real until Jesus returns. But we need not fear it. Because we are being refined, not destroyed. What God is doing with illness, what God is doing as he walks us towards death, is he's making us in the image of his son. That in our sufferings, he is forming in us this picture of his son, Jesus Christ. That's what I asked you at the beginning of our sermon. Did you allow the hurts of this week? Did you allow the suffering of this week? Did you allow those into the hands of the living God by the power of his spirit and the truth of his word to mold you more and more and more into the image of his son, Jesus Christ? Because that hurts. 
You ever, been, you, ever, you ever run over your arm with a sander on accident? Don't shake your head. You should. It hurts. It hurts. It hurts to be molded. It hurts to be shaved. It hurts to be made into something different. And yet in our sufferings, we're joining with the one that Scripture tells us, that in his sufferings, Jesus learned obedience. And we join him in those sufferings, Philippians 3.10, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection, and I may share in his sufferings, and become like him in his death. That in our sufferings, we're becoming like Jesus. That we're joining him in death, and that ultimately this process of molding, this process of sanctification, it is completed in death. So that that thing that is meant for evil, that thing that was meant as a curse, that now today for the child of God, in our death, in that moment when we see Jesus as he is, we will be like he is. So that while we are slowly being sanctified in this lifetime through the sufferings, through the sickness, through the failings, that at the end of this there will be an incredible acceleration from so far short to all the way there. That that is when we come into glory, is at that moment of death. That's why we don't fear death. But I need you to hear me because the, the implications of this are very far-reaching. I, I, I think we've fallen but, but because we do long to be with the Lord. Because there are times that life gets hard, and we look forward to the eternal kingdom, and we look forward to being with the Lord. And, and Paul said that, to depart and be with the Lord, that that's his heart, that's his desire. We must never forget that death is not our friend, that life, all life, is a precious gift from God. Even life of suffering, especially life of suffering, is a precious gift from God. We don't get to be the dictators of how much suffering is too much. We don't get to draw lines in the sand and say, Father God, you, will, you can allow me to suffer up to this point, but then no more. We trust our Holy Father that he is good, that he is using even our worst sufferings, even our worst pain to do us good and to bring him glory. So that we can truly cry out, Father God, we praise you in these sufferings. We honor you in these sufferings. We don't like them. We don't understand them. But we trust you that you are doing good, that the God who is good is doing this. So that we have zero fear. We have zero fear of pain. We have zero fear of suffering. We have zero fear of death. And I need you to see how this sets us free. Because then in that moment... Keeping ourselves from pain, keeping ourselves from suffering, preserving our life is no longer the purpose. This world has lied to you. They have convinced you that you can live this life pain-free, that it should be your goal to store up enough money or enough medicine or enough whatever it is to make sure that you never suffer an ounce in this life. And that your goal above all else must be to preserve life, that you must preserve your life and take no risks, leave nothing to chance, do everything you can to preserve your life, and that's not true. That's a lie from Satan. That's to worship self. That's to disregard the words of our Father. We're meant to cry out with the words we find in Acts 20, 24. I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself. If only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God that we don't account our life of any value by itself, only what can it accomplish for the kingdom of God? I will take this life and I will hand it over to him. Christian, take care of your body. Your body is a temple. Eat your vitamins. Eat an apple a day. Get your rest. Wash your hands. Exercise a little bit. Sleep enough. Yes, all that. But then once you've done that, you stand at the ready for your God to call upon you and to rush into the most dangerous of places. To go to the places that you never wanted to go, that the rest of the world calls you crazy to go, and you go. And I'm not just talking about the ends of the world. Because it's easy to sit here and go, yeah, okay, someday God might call you to Africa. There's plenty of dangerous places here. There's plenty of places that you can go today that you can suffer. Maybe not physically. Maybe it's emotionally. Maybe it's mentally. But when he calls you, that you pack up and that you go. Because, dear friends, at the moment of your salvation, you're no longer your own. You've been bought at a price. And your life is now meant to be a living sacrifice poured out in service to the kingdom. They didn't tell you that when you signed up, did they? They promised you blessing. Nothing but goodness. True, you will be blessed. And true, God is doing good. But you've got to change the way you think about those two terms. Listen to the words 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. 
For you are not your own, you are bought at a price. So glorify God in your body. And hear how radically different that is from the rest of the world. I think about Rocky and Marla, their Roman ministries in Japan. I heard this week that what they're doing while the, while the coronavirus is outbreaking and people are all losing their minds, that what they're doing is they're opening up their place as a daycare and saying, bring us all your kids. You know who carries viruses? Kids. But they don't, it's not about that. They're not their own. They were bought at a price. I think about all those, all those missionaries that you hear about. They would go into these towns where there was a plague or there was leprosy or there was a sickness, and they would go into these tents where nobody else would go so that these people could just get their human touch. Sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? As he would reach out his hand and take the hand of a leper, those that were despised, those that were feared, those that were run from by all people, that would go into these places because we don't worry about sickness any longer. We don't worry about death any longer. That's not our goal in all this. So as we run and we chase and we go all in for the sake of the kingdom of God and we find people that we love sick and we find ourselves sick, yes, in those moments we make intercession to the Father. We pray to the Father knowing that Jesus, our high priest, is also interceding on our behalf. That he is representing us before the throne because we've got no righteousness to offer the Father. We've got nothing in and of ourselves to ask the Father but from the position of his perfect righteousness accredited to us written to our account, that he can go before the Father and say, Father, please, on their behalf, I'm asking you. I'm asking you to be glorified in their healing. That's what intercession looks like, knowing that he can do it. Because we've seen it. You've seen it before. You've seen these miraculous healings. You've seen those times when you go to the doctor and the doctor tells you, look, you got some real problems here. Scans came back. Blood results came back. You, you may well need to get your affairs in order, but you're going to come back in a month, a week, and we're going to do the scan. And so you come to your brothers and your sisters and you say, I need some intercession. I need you to go to the Holy Father. I need you to beg him to do something because only he can do something in this moment. And we gather together and we pray and we set them aside and we pray for them. And then they go back for their scan and they go, I, I don't know what happened. But you just don't have it anymore. Whatever it was. You've seen those times. You've known that God still works in this way. But that's not the normal pattern. It's not normal for him to act in those kind of miraculous ways. Even in Jesus' time, miracles weren't just an everyday occurrence or it wouldn't have caught anybody's attention, Right? Like, people wouldn't have mobbed to his house. There's just people doing miracles all over the place. And so it caught their attention. It was an it was a, it was a, it was a atypical thing for Jesus to do this. In addition to that, we need to understand why it is that he did the miracles. You'll see three different types of miracles that Jesus performed. One would be miracles over nature. There are those times when he would walk on water, when he would turn water into wine, we would make more fish out of little fish, more bread out of little bread. There, was these, there were these times when he was showing that he had power over either, even the natural world. He could hush. He could just shh. And the, and, the, and, the, and the storms would quiet down, right? We saw last week that he had power over the spiritual world, over the demons. And then there were these instances of healing. But the purpose in all those, the purpose in all of his miracles was to confirm his identity and validate his message. His purpose in this was to make true that I really am the Christ. This message that I've been preaching, repent, believe in the gospel, and be saved, that it is real, that it is true, that it is honest, that it can be trusted. That was the purpose in these miracles. And even when he entrusted Miracles just like this to his disciples, to his apostles, excuse me, or, or, the, or the 70 that he sent out to go out and heal. Even when he entrusted that kind of authority to them, listen to what he says. Luke 9, 1 through 2. And he called the 12 together, and he gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. The purpose in these miracles wasn't just about the men. The purpose in these miracles wasn't just about the healing, because all these people eventually died. The purpose wasn't just about healing these people. The purpose wasn't just about showing that God is love, although all those things happened. It wasn't just about the compassion of Christ, although that was there. Ultimately, it was about showing the people, I am who I say I am. And my message is to be trusted. But we're so man-centered, we turn everything into being about us. Even when we're reading about somebody else, we make man the center of the gospel. We make man the center of the universe. And that's just not what we see in Jesus' life. That he's giving these people, frankly, what they need more badly than physical healing. What they needed more badly than for a fever to go away was to trust that he's the Messiah. And so in his love and in his mercy, but more than that, in his glory and in his zeal for his glory, he is making clear exactly who he is and why he has come. He's making clear that he is the Christ. Matthew, as he's, as he's, as he's giving us the same account, he makes that clear, that Jesus has come and that this healing and these things that he's doing is to fulfill the prophets. The words of Isaiah, he took our illness and he bore our disease. He was proving out this message, but that message has already been proven for, for us today. 
We've already got the gospel message recorded for us. We've already got faithful witnesses that can attest to the fact that he is the Messiah. We've already got these records of these healings that can attest to the fact that he is the Christ, that he is the Messiah. So there's not that same necessity today for this same kind of miraculous healing, at least not on the scale that we see it here. I think that's why we saw very few healings like this in the Old Testament. We see a spike in Jesus' day, and then we, we, we don't see it nearly as frequently today as we did back then. So I think that's why we can, we can see, even in the lives of the apostles, even in the time of the early church, you can see differences at different times. Think about like Paul and Barnabas. They go to they go to Iconium, and in Acts 14, 3, we read this. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore many witnesses to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. So that Paul is there, and he's doing signs, and he's doing wonders to attest to the word of Jesus Christ. But then you flip over to other books, and you see him talking to his brother Timothy. Timothy had some ailments, and what, is, what does Paul tell him? Drink a little bit of wine. Drink some wine for your stomach and for your many ailments. Well, Paul, why didn't you just heal him? Or at the ends of some of his other letters, he'll ask about his sick brothers. Or he'll say, I left this town, and I left this sick brother there. Then I go, to this. well, Paul, are you just a jerk? Why don't you just heal them all? If that's just the way God heals all the time, if from this point forward, it's just all about God's miraculous healing and trusted to those that follow him, then why wouldn't you just do that? Why are you telling this dude to go drink? It's because that's not the normal pattern. That's not always the way that God does things. So that when we stand here today, we recognize that generally speaking, God's going to use medicine. He's going to use doctors. He's going to use the normal means around us to bring about this healing. So that's the question. Does God still work like this? Is this still his desire today? Sure, yes, sometimes. But we need to recognize that that power has never rested in the hands of men. Even when Paul was the one healing, the power was never in him. Listen to his words in Acts 3, 12. Excuse me, this words of Peter. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Why do you stare at us as if we in our own power and piety have made this man walk? It was never in their own power. It was always about what Jesus was doing. The power was never with men. It was always with him. It was always with God. So yes, we pray for healing. We pray for miraculous healing. I pray for that here Wednesday night all the time. God, if it be your will, would you just miraculously heal every single one of these people? Supernaturally, would you just heal every single one of these people? Do what you did there in Capernaum and just call them all to be healed because that would be great for me. That's my will, but it's not about my will. It's about your will. And I trust that your will is better than my will. And so what I'm asking you, Father, is you, could, you would do this now. And when we come to these topics, people always like to debate about whether or not spiritual, um, the spiritual gift of healing is still given. Do people today still have the spiritual gift of healing? Okay? Number one, before I say a word, this is not the kind of stuff we break fellowship over. There's the deity of Christ. There's the truth of the gospel. There's the promise of the resurrection. There's the holiness of God. Yeah, we need to break fellowship if we can't get right on these. Spiritual gifts and which ones are still here, we're not there. But here's what I think. I think that God gave specific gifts at specific times for the purpose of, exactly as I've said, proving out the gospel. There were temporary proving gifts that he gave, such as healing. I think there are other gifts that he gave for the building up of the church, more permanent gifts that he gave for the building up of the church that are still here today. But here's what I will say to you. Even if you believe that the spiritual gift of healing is still given, fair enough. But the power is always resting in the spirit. They are spiritual gifts. And you will never find a time in scripture where spirit is not coming in truth. So that any man that preaches anything other than the truth of Jesus Christ, that man has no healing to offer you from above. It is the power of the Holy Spirit. And we must guard our ears. That's why we must know the scriptures. That's why we must know God's law. That's why we must love this book so that we can discern truth from lies so that we can understand what gifts God has given but ultimately the power is all about him ultimately the power is all about him and any man that would build himself up any man that would build himself up with these kind of gifts because what you see in these spiritual gifts all throughout history it's about edifying the church it's about building up the church it's about building up the body it's not about a dude getting rich and famous you know the ones I'm talking about they love to smack you with their jacket and claim you're healed that's not what God is doing. That's not what he's done with any of his gifts. And so we come together during the hard times. We come together and we follow the words of James. Listen, we anointed two sisters Wednesday night. We took, we took oil. It was ordinary oil. I told everybody, it's ordinary oil. It's Rose of Sharon. It came from Jerusalem, but it's still ordinary oil. There's no magic in the oil. There's no magic in my prayers. But as we anoint our sister, we're following the words of James. We're setting her aside for a special purpose of prayer. Scripture says to bring the elders. You go to the elders and they put their hands upon them and they pray for them. 
They pray, dear God, you still work miracles, would you work miracles here? Dear God, you still work healing, would you work healing here? Yes, we ask for miracles at all times, but more times than not, we rest in the fact that God's going to heal by doctors, he's going to heal by medicine, he's going to heal by what we call ordinary means, but even in that, listen to my voice, they are all his. It's all his. It's no less the hand of God when he all of a sudden shrinks a tumor on his own and makes it go away than when he uses chemo. It's all his. He's done it all. It's all from his good hand. All healing comes from him. He uses doctors. He uses hospitals. He uses medical centers. But ultimately, God is the only one that heals. And so we worship him. We never get it twisted. Even when that healing comes at the hands of a pagan doctor, he's still the one to be glorified. He's still the one to be worshiped. But what about those that aren't healed? What about the people that don't receive healing? They pray to God and they've asked for a miracle. And they said, God, I know you can heal me. Would you? God, I know that you could send the medicine and make it work. Would you? What do those people make of that? How would we respond to healing when it's just not coming? Firstly, I do think it's right to remember the parable of the friend in need. That we keep asking. We keep knocking at our father's door and we keep asking. He doesn't despise our asking. It is precious to him when his children faithfully, with a heart of faith and a heart of belief, when they ask over and over and over again, showing our desperation for him and our dependence on him. But secondly, in addition to that, we trust that if God can heal and he doesn't, it must be for our greater good and his greater glory. If we trust that God works all things for good, if we trust that God works all things for his glory, then we trust that if the healing doesn't come, it is for our greater good and for his greater glory, will we trust him in that? It's easy to trust him when it's a brother that's sick. It's easy to trust him when it's somebody else's kid that's sick, but when it is yours, will you trust? Will you believe him that he is working good at all times? In addition to that, we do not doubt our own faith. Listen now. There are instances in Scripture where Jesus will say, your faith, go, your faith has made you well. But faith is never the place in which the power of healing comes. Faith is the reaching out of a hand and it's receiving of a gift. The faith that these people had was faith in seeking him as the healer and trusting that he is the one that heals. He didn't heal all. He healed some. I'm not a violent man, ordinarily. But if there's everybody, ever been anybody that I wanted to beat to a pulp, it is pastors that will stand in pulpits, look at their precious sheep, and tell them, if you'll just have enough faith, you will be healed. That is a lie straight from the pit of hell. Did Paul not have enough faith? He died. Did Peter not have enough faith? He died. Did your grandmother not have enough faith? She died. And what those people do when they tell somebody something like that, is then they're left not only with broken bodies that don't cooperate, not only with broken bodies that don't heal, but a broken spirit that wonders what's wrong with them. Why couldn't I just believe enough? Why couldn't I just believe hard enough? Or perhaps then they doubt the goodness of God. Because someone has told them that God promised something that he never promised. God has not promised you healing in this life. As a matter of fact, what he's promised you is great suffering and turmoil and pestilence, and famine, and sword. He has promised you that this life will be hard. He has promised you that you will suffer, and some of you will suffer for a long, long, long time with no end in sight. But dear friends, he is good, and he is working for your good. He is building a kingdom of people that look like his son, Jesus Christ, and this is what it takes. This is what it looks like, because we're not easy learners. We don't learn well when things are good. We don't learn well when we are rich, and fat and happy we learn when times are lean and so he takes us to these places he allows us to suffer so that we don't doubt ourselves in these moments that we don't doubt ourselves and god why couldn't we just believe enough certainly is it right to make sure that you are of the faith does the bible say examine yourself and see that you're of the faith yes at all times but you don't ever base the fact that you're not of the faith on the fact that your body's still broken that you trust that the God who is good that the God who is above and his son who has taken the curse upon himself that he has no longer condemned you there's no condemnation upon you. This is not the punishment of God's hand. That he's not trying to destroy you. He's not trying to drive you away. He's not showing his displeasure. As a matter of fact, he may be showing you his great pleasure. He may be delighting in you in the middle of all this. So the question is not whether God heals you. That's never the question. The question is, will you worship him when he doesn't? Will you glorify his name when he doesn't? 
When you've cried every tear you can cry, when you've prayed every prayer you know to pray, when you've tried every remedy you could try, and at the end of all this thing, you're still sitting there broken, will you praise his holy name? Will you suffer with him, knowing that the end of this life of suffering comes a life of glory, if you suffer with him? Will you trust him that he is the God who is good? Will you trust him that he is building a body, a holy body, a glorious body, a bride for his son, Jesus Christ? And that part of becoming a group of that is that we no longer get to live selfish lives, that we no longer get to put barriers up around ourselves, that we no longer get to shield ourselves from suffering, that we are to lay down our lives and pour them out as a living sacrifice for the better good of the body and for the glory of the kingdom. That's the question. That's the only question. Dear friends, I pray that's where you are. This is not the way to make friends and make lots of money, to tell people this truth. But dear friends, when we build our, when we build our houses upon the solid rock, the solid truth of Christ Jesus, because here's the truth of the matter. When we build our rock upon sand, upon lies, upon half-truths, upon pieces of what God might have said if we were God and we were writing for him, when the winds come and the waves come, we will be destroyed. So we build upon the solid truth. Even as hard as that truth is to grasp in this moment, even as badly as some of us maybe wish that wasn't the truth, but it's only when we stand from that place that we can endure. We've got a responsibility to each other. When you find your brother and sister wavering in the wind and in the waves, you come alongside them and you hold them up. You encourage them. You exhort them. You know this is true. You've known it was true from the beginning. Stand strong. Father God, we love you and we thank you. We thank you, Father, that you are good. At all times, you are good. Father, we thank you that we need not ever fear. Is God against me? That because of your son, Jesus Christ, you are for us in every way you are for us. So much so, Father, that even when our bodies are failing, even when our faith is weak, Father God, we never for one second need to doubt your goodness, your desire to do us good. Father God, may we align our understanding of what is good with yours, not the other way around. May we trust in your son, Jesus Christ. Father God, if there's one here this morning that has not that, taken that step, has not turned from their sin and trusted in Jesus Christ, if they are still condemned, if what awaits them at the end of this life is nothing but hell and eternal torment, Father, turn them now. Only you can do this. May the song that we sing now be pleasing to your ears. May we leave this place changed and on fire for you. To your son's precious name we pray. Amen.